None of the content on this or any episode of the Kratom Science Podcast and Kratom Science Journal Club, nor on any of the pages of KratomScience.com, should be considered medical claims or medical advice. This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. on my notes. No, this is called Real-Time Monitoring of Dopamine Release Evoked by Mitragenine parentheses Kratom and Insight Through Electrochemical Sensor. Now the title it's kind of a mistake because they're calling Mitragenine Kratom and what we've mm-hmm. gone over many times is Kratom is a entourage of many alkaloids so this is just my tragedine but i'm sure that was just shorthand i'm sure they know that uh this well, is out of point though for sure yeah yeah this is out of uh university of science in malaysia i work down at the university of uh science there this appeared in neuroscience letters so i guess it, i don't know if it was a letter but it's kind of like a small study it's not as detailed and there's a few charts there but um Basically, what they're doing is measuring uh, dopamine release in um, rats. In the rats, f- the aim is in this study we investigated the effects of mitragenine on dopamine level and dopamine transporter expression from the rat's frontal cortex. So I I know most people who listen probably know generally what dopamine is, but do you want to just explain what dopamine is and does in general? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, dopamine is one of the primary cata- catecholamine neurotransmitters, uh, um, and it's typically involved in like motivation and reward. Um, so that would be, um, you know, in humans seeking uh, social interaction, sex, food, um, dancing, you know, but it seems to be, and I, you know, I think we hit this on one of our early ones, it seems to be that dopamine release occurs uh, in anticipation of an award, and then uh, sort of uh, goes lower after that. But dopamine is also so it's involved in 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 uh, addiction research. It's also involved in sort of mood and affect, particularly related to around depression. Although we go over to the other catecholamines like serotonin and that. Um, also, interestingly, involved in uh, movement disorders. So, like Parkinson's is results from the, the death of dopamine neurons in a substantia nigra. It's a particular brain region, and um, without that, they sort of lack the ability to do coordinated movement. Um, so, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm sure everybody's uh, at least heard dopamine, but it is a, a broad neurotransmitter involved in in a number of behavioral and psychological uh, functions. Yeah, and uh, dopamine release is when it, they talk about dopamine release here, and that's when it actually interacts with the dopamine receptors, is that right? Yeah, well, so what they're measuring here is dopamine released from the inside of neurons to the outside, and of course, neurons communicate with chemical and electrical messages, but generally chemical that are released from one neuron, gone into a space called the synapse, 
and then received by the dopamine receptors on the subsequent neuron in that signaling chain. Um, so when they mean released, they're saying they're measuring, um, and really what they're measuring in this particular thing with this uh, electrochemical sensor is a change in the uh, electrical balance or imbalance between the inside of the neurons and the outside of the neurons that then they attribute to additional dopamine being released from inside the cell to outside the cell um, in that signaling chain. They use an electrochemical sensor and it looks like it's actually hooked up to the brain of the rat. And I think I've seen like videos where it's like a rat's running around in a cage with a wire hanging out of their head. Is that the mm -hmm. kind of thing they're doing? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. More or less. That is it. You know, they'll, they'll, um, anesthetize the animals. They'll drill a little hole or, you know, I've seen also too, like the whole, the whole top of the skull can be sort of popped off. Um, and then that gives you a window into, um, into the brain. You know, the, I'm not, I have never done these sort of electrical probe studies um, very much myself. I mean, I think there's a, a long history, not a long history. There's a history of these being used, especially as it relates to dopamine and Parkinson's. So there are um, like uh, sort of like a, um, what do you call the thing that they put on the heart? Um, to keep it beating oh uh pacemaker pacemaker <laughs> oh, yeah. cool. that's right. <laughs> there there are things like a pacemaker um that is um deep brain stimulation or dbs that essentially they will um insert these electrodes if it's in parkinson's down into that substantia nigra that i was talking about and essentially it will pulse um like a pacemaker would but will help with the release uh, of dopamine down in there and restore sort of fluid movements. And so I'm more familiar with deep brain stimulation. And so that's putting electrodes into the brain to cause an electrical signal to occur rather than to read an electrical signal. Um, and that's what they're doing in this case. They're, they're reading that change in the electrical gradient or the, the electrical potential there. Um, you know, I think... I think they do a, a fine job of demonstrating with the calibration curve that the changes in current that they are able to read are related to the dopamine concentration. You know, it's a, a 99 or 98% correlation there. Um, but I guess because I'm just unfamiliar with it, I, of these methods, I don't know, like, I don't know how loosely one can be attributed. Uh, and I guess for what I'm saying is like, you know, when we were watching zebrafish, there was a set of behaviors that we called erratic movements. And if there were more erratic movements, the fish was considered more stressed or more anxious. And in that situation, um, we would have to train all of our new staff um, to get a high inter-rater reliability, meaning that what JC sees as an erratic movement Brian also sees as an erratic movement, but of course there's subjective, mm -hmm. subjective differences there. And like, what, you know, do you want to see three sharp turns and, you know, have it last for three seconds. Whereas I see two sharp turns and it lasts for one second. Both of those could count for an erratic movement. Um, and of course, in uh, uh, visually observing behavioral uh, attributes there, it's really hard to actually eliminate that subjective variation. We were trying to with video recordings, um, and having the computer analyze it. And so I guess I'm, I'm saying that in that it's my own infamiliarity with this method 
where I don't know this concentration is very important. The correlation of the uh, of the change in current with the dopamine concentration is very tight. It's obviously something that they um, spent time establishing, and I think they have familiarity with this um, with this particular method at this lab. So I, you know, I have no reason to doubt it. But there's this part of me that wonders how do they know it's actually dopamine versus another catecholamine? I mean, what if it's norepinephrine or what if it's serotonin? Mm. Um, the measuring in the current doesn't necessarily uh, explicitly mean that it's dopamine. But again, I, I think this is largely due to my infamiliarity with the method and, and how you set it up and how you get the electrodes where you actually want the electrode to be. I mean, we're talking about, um, this is mice or rats? Rats, mice, right? yeah. Oh, rats, rats. okay. Yeah. Well, so then we're talking about um, uh, a brain that's maybe you know, the size of a quarter um, overall, it's not huge, you know, maybe like a little bit smaller than an old mouse ball at a computer. Um, and that's the entire brain. So, you know, you stick it in the front of that and that's the frontal cortex more or less. But uh, when they do deep brain simulation, for example, they hook this giant like erector set cage onto your skull, like bolted to your skull <laughs> so they can get very precise placement of where these things go. And that's in a human brain or bigger brains. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's just some unknowns there for me that that uh, brings out the skeptic in me. But again, based on what they've written here and published, and I think their previous publications, there's no real reason to, to dig in on what that would potentially mean. I, I couldn't find it on here, but would they give them oral mitragenine or through an IV? Yeah, it was so interperennial. So oh, okay. um, it doesn't look... It looks like they just are injecting it into their sort of abdomen area. They're not, um, okay. there's something called a, a like a flage or something like that, where essentially you stick a tube down uh, an animal's throat and then push it through. Like you can feed them that way to just push it into their stomach. Uh, this was an injection into the abdomen. Okay. So it, I guess it would still be subject to metabolism because we know most of the 7-hydroxy comes from it uh, my tragedy being metabolized um mm -hmm. but i'm not sure they even um talked about that in this i i think they were just focused on the mitragenine um yeah yeah that's a fair uh a, a fair point to bring up certainly you know when they were doing the uh measure the like uh measuring the concentrations of the dopamine transporter they could have then um, measured for metragenine concentration and the 7-hydroxymetragenine concentration, then we would have had some insights into that. Um, but yeah, you're right. They don't mention that. So dopamine transporter is responsible for the reuptake of dopamine from the synaptic cleft and for the termination of dopaminergic transmission. And just in studying about drugs in general, like what cocaine does, I think it, I think it blocks the reuptake or it blocks uh, dopamine basically wearing off from the receptor and that's why it works the way it does um yeah interesting interesting in that um if i'm remembering correctly so amphetamines block the reuptake so yeah, yeah in order for any neurotransmitter to stop signaling and of course starting and stopping signaling is a of critical home you know that homeostasis is critical to proper brain functioning um and so there are, you know, several drugs, uh, well, butin blocks the reuptake at the dopamine transporter. And I think amphetamine blocks the reuptake, whereas cocaine, um, I think more 
more likely induces the sort of flooding of the dirt dopamine out of this, out of the, the first neuron in the situation. So it's like, you know, you're opening a door and letting and forcing all the dopamine out versus preventing it from being reuptake. I, I think it's been a minute since I looked into that. So uh, DA level was recorded in brain samples of animals treated with acute or repeated exposure for four consecutive days with either vehicle or mitragynine using the electrochemical sensor. Animals were then decapitated and the brain regions were removed, snapped, frozen in liquid nitrogen, and stored. Um, they all went to heaven. Doesn't say that in there, but I'm assuming they all went to rat heaven. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the dopamine level is quantified using immunosorbent assay, ELISA kits. So basically they measured them for four days. Some of them got repeated mitragynine and some of them got, I guess, one dose on one day. And just reading from the highlights, well, it did, it did. The sensor detected dopamine changes in my, in the mitragynine treated rats. So the mitragynine did affect it. So it did not increase dopamine release following a single treatment, but it significantly increased dopamine release after repeated exposure. Um, and 30 milligrams per kilogram was the highest level, and that increased that MNR, mRNA expression after repeated exposure. Now, what does that mean exactly? Is that the, the MNR, MR, mRNA of dopamine? Of yeah. the dopamine? Because we, we've been hearing, I mean, the public has been hearing about mRNA from, you know, the vaccines. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, fair. So um, the central dogma in biology is that we have DNA, then RNA, and then proteins. And so that's how proteins are synthesized and made. So mm -hmm. essentially, you unwrap the DNA, and then a, a copy of that DNA is made, and that's called RNA. And then the RNA generally gets shoveled or, or shuttled around to different parts of a cell um, and then gets bound by some enzymes that then read the uh, RNA and make the protein. And so the protein in this case is the dopamine uh, reuptake uh, transporter, um, DAT. And so the, um, the, the assumption is, and I don't know if it is so much an assumption, maybe it's, it's, uh, it's known, but basically if the concentration of the mRNA is increasing, Presumably, then the translation or creation of the of the DAP proteins are also being increased. So the, there was two concentrations yeah. of metragenine, um, one milligram per kilogram and 30 milligrams per kilogram. And I'm pretty sure that all of the animals were exposed for multiple days, but it was just whether or not they were getting one or 30 milligrams per kilogram. So it was a dose response. Uh, significantly increased after repeated exposure of 30 milligrams per kilogram yeah so the highest concentration given for the longest time is where they got sig statistically significant uh differences here um but what i will say like if we're looking at figure three um you can see that in day one um and it's actually the the black is the vehicle so that's sort of a baseline i don't know this is against the mean so basically the black is they got the uh, their stomach poked with the injection, um, but there was no metragenine in that injection. That's just a vehicle. So mm -hmm. the, the, the blank uh, shot. Um, 
it's interesting to me just looking at the vehicles though you can see that they um measured the so this is yeah and this is this figure three is the current so this is them measuring with the electrode so on the first day the animals that just got the vehicle so the blank shot they're relatively low it looks like um less than 0.5 of the pico amp current is measured but then those same animals on day four their response in the um in the electrochemical sensor is now up above one and so if you'll notice too like looking at day one compared to day four in day one none of the animals whether they got the vehicle the metragenine one milligram or the a 30 milligram per kilogram were above uh a one in the picoamp current measured um whereas you know the baseline in day four is now approaching 1.5 it's about one but about 1.5 and so there's just a at least a two-fold difference maybe even a three-fold difference in some cases on the dopamine response without the drug at all. And so I, I mentioned that because I, I was hinting at the beginning that it seems that dopamine and the rewarding effects of dopamine are sort of given in the anticipation of something rather than actually getting that something. And so I just, I just wonder why um, all of the animals seem to have had a, uh, an, an increase in dopamine signaling as measured by the electro sensor from day one to day four. Um, you, you see what I'm saying? It just huh. is interesting to me. And I don't know if they necessarily address that fully. Yeah, I mean, because I was going to say, I guess the reason they give them a vehicle is so they all have kind of a similar whatever physical response to being in that situation uh, right, with, yeah, with or without. I mean, I right. guess that, that's just kind of a general principle of, of these kinds of uh, studies. But, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, and it, and it said though, yeah, it did not increase um, dopamine release following acute treatment. However, after repeated exposure, day four, my tragedine significantly and dose dependently increased dopamine release in the frontal cortex. Now, is the frontal cortex kind of important to where the dopamine action happens and is maybe most effective? Um, no, well, presumably okay. it's in that anticipation of reward type thing. So it's not, you know, generally most addiction studies are looking at the nucleus accumbens, which is sort of a, um, inner brain structure. It's not necessarily part of the, you know, the outer edge in the front there, but the outer, the frontal cortex is generally where we think of like advanced cognition, planning, learning, associating different things. Um, and that's why they were looking there. I mean, it's a, it's a definitely a fair pace to look. The biggest thing that had me confused about this, though, is if we're looking back at figure three, figure 3B, um, it looks like the metragenine 30s and the it looks like the ones that got the one dose are sort of almost the same as the vehicle. And then the 30s are lower. So they measured a um, less of a current change. But then when they measure dopamine concentrations with the ELISA, so that's like, you know, literally taking the whole brain, messing it up, getting it just to it's like principal components, and then you run it through, it's an uh, immunoenzyme linked assay, speaking of stuff that we've talked about because of Corona. Um, yeah. Typically, the antibody tests are done with immunoenzyme linked assays, this ELISA type. Okay. And so they're seeing less current. Uh, 
after the dopamine release. And in fact, you know, given that, that there's a scale difference here, and I guess it's just the data visualization nerd in me is, is looking at these scale differences. It would have been much better if they kept the scales of, of 3A and 3B the same. Um, but it looks like you could just eyeballing it say, well, then it doesn't look like necessarily that between the first day and the, and the fourth day for these 30s, that there really was a significant difference as measured by the electrochemical sensor. And if there was a significant difference, then it was lower. The electrocurrent current change is lower, even though, like I said, they're about the same on the scale. Um, but then when you look at the immunoenzyme linked assays, uh, they're looking at increases of dopamine concentration. Um, and, and again, you know, there are, these are, ELISA assays and ELISA kits are very standard. Those have been around for a long, long time. But you're going from one where you're injecting the mouse and you're measuring a difference in current that's coming from a wire out of their head. So it's essentially like, you know, hands off. So now looking at it where you have to perform a dissection, you have to perform another uh, number of chemical sort of cleans and centrifuge uh, things and, and then inject it into the, uh, the ELISA assay. The ELISA assay then usually sits for, you know, some amount of time while the, um, while the chemicals that they're measuring are pulled through the gel pad there. It's an electrochemical difference. So they have positive charge at the top and, and minus at the bottom and they pull it through this, this gel um, square. So I guess I'm just uh, I'm, I'm pointing out too that there's a lot more handling that went involved be between those two things. That if anything, I would expect them to be um, tightly correlated, but it doesn't look like they're tightly correlated. Um, it looks like it, the electrical current went down, but then the dopamine measured via ELISA went up, hmm. um, which is which is interesting. The little background part in the abstract said. You know, my tragenine has been reported previously to possess abuse liability, but there are insufficient data suggesting the mechanism through which this causes addiction. Um, and, I mean, when, when I spoke, uh, I recently did an um, uh, interview with the head of pharmacodynamics at uh, Dr. Lance McMahon at University of Florida, and basically they're saying, like, there's hardly any of the seven hydroxy in the plant and mm -hmm. my tragenine doesn't really seem to do that much until it's metabolized into seven hydroxy so i i think maybe we're the we're kind of where they're looking for uh like addiction and abuse liability um i don't know if it, if it wasn't metabolized into the the um more potent um partial opioid agonists and i'm not sure they would they would find anything is that, I mean, is that basically what they're trying to do is to, to measure the dopamine to see how addictive my tragedy can be addiction potential. Yeah. And you, and you bring a very good point up and this is the other major sort of um, potential downside of this. And, you know, I didn't read anything in the discussion about this, but this, they could have made that case far, far better if they included the vehicle, the metragenine at the two doses, and then another opiate, it's like heroin or oxycodone, oxycodone or hydrocodone, um, or even codeine they could have done. If, you, if they just had a standard narcotic uh, chemical alongside of 
the metragenine, then it would have been a much stronger case to make, depending on where the results were, whether there's um, a mechanism here for addiction potential or not. Because mm. um, I mean, as you can as you can guess, it could have very much been the case that like. Let's say um, back to figure three, if we would have had a, a group that was given uh, heroin, then maybe the current change in there was like five picoamps, you know, like off the charts high. Mm. Um, and in that case, it, you couldn't really make a very good case to say metragenine was very addictive because it's not like it's exceeding that of uh, opiates, narcotics that we know um, leading to psychological and physical uh, dependence. Um, but without that, you know, we're really just making a claim on the metragenine in isolation. Um, and, you know, the thing is, too, <clears throat> I would assume that this research is is part of a much larger program that they're doing over there at the Science University. And neuroscience letters is generally, I think I've published two or three papers in neuroscience letters. And it's okay. generally like an update on ongoing work where you have a much larger project that's going over the course of two or three years, but you have some interesting preliminary data that you'd like to get out into the literature as fast as you can, um, just quickly to get it out there. And you know, you're sort of, it's a smaller builder block of a much bigger project. Um, and so that could be the case that they are doing what we're suggesting here with like adding other opiates there. But without that other opiate, it's really tough to make any comparative claims about this is more or less addictive because or than than this opiate. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And and I know they're doing a lot of stuff. Like I interviewed um uh Dr. Darshan Singh. He was in the Leaf of Faith documentary and um mm -hmm. he was one of my early episodes and he, he's doing he does a lot of the social science and stuff with uh just like some of the broader um, studies on, you know, uh, long-term kratom users in Malaysia and, and effects on their health and everything. Um, so I I think they're uh, they're doing a lot on on kratom over there. I think uh, mm -hmm. they they have been yeah they I've been, I've seen more of the social science from there, but I think they're obviously they're doing um, some of the brain stuff too as well. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, this is important, you know, psycho farm work to be done, but I would be interested to see, you know, like where we're at um, uh, six months from now, maybe there's another uh, paper published by this group where they do include the other, uh, the other uh, narcotics. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, I think it's it. <laughs> um... Uh, um, yeah, so it looks like, uh, so yeah, so they looked at the, the dopamine mRNA expression. That was a pretty strong uh, increase. So there was an increase in the uh, DAT mRNA uh, in the frontal cortex of the metragenine 30 uh, exposed rats, where you didn't see that in the remaining cortex of the hippocampus. Um, it's been a long, long time since I've done a rat dissection where I would want to like take one brain and then piece out just the frontal cortex and then you'd have the remaining cortex and then the hippocampus is down in there as well. Um, so there, you know, you have to have a skilled, uh, a skilled surgical blade in order to get that dissection from the same brain. Um, but it looks pretty convincing that there was a, an increase in the, in the frontal cortex uh, of that dopamine reuptake inhibitor or reuptake uh, transporter. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I think I think overall the combination of the electrophysiological sensor, 
paired with the uh, immunolinked uh, uh, assays, the ELISA kits, and then with looking at the mRNA expression. This was all work that we did do with the zebrafish, except, you know, the zebrafish brain is about the size of a booger. So it's a lot harder to <laughs> separate different regions of that without, you know, microscopes and, and uh, yeah. fluorescent proteins. Um, but the, the combination of all three of those together does make for a, um, you know, does make for a solid platform in which you can look at things like addiction. You know, be the other interesting thing is if they did a, a condition place preference test. So if we had a behavioral um, endpoint to match with these molecular endpoints and genetic endpoints, that could um, potentially strengthen the claim. Um, you know, because it could be like. Let's say that they were, if there was condition place preference and none of them showed a, a preference for the area in which they're getting the metragenine, the claims of addiction would be a lot harder to, to make. Um, they're essentially, I would say two even, it would probably be more accurate to say that this is more about physiological dependence than it is about um, addiction. Yeah, I was just going to bring that up, and I had a note about that, too. That's the one other note that I found. Um, somebody somebody uh, online, because I, I follow a lot on Twitter, I follow a lot of the um, pain patient advocates, and um, somebody called it the substance exposure causation theory for addiction, which I, that sounds like it's an official... Uh, Theory. It does sound official, <laughs> <laughs> but that's that's the, yeah the use of the term addiction is kind of weird because it's because it's de defined now <clears throat> in the uh, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as uh, a drug habit that you can't quit or you won't quit even though it keeps causing negative effects. So that's more of that, yeah. that. So that term come is more of like a human psychological thing, and I guess I wonder if in in accordance with that if if we're testing it on rats you should say does it cause physiological dependence or right or even right. psychological dependence um instead right. of addiction but i don't know if they have might have the same standards in other countries i assume it would be a worldwide standard for these terms yeah but... yeah certainly uh, you know and i think so that's what they're looking at they're looking at physiological changes based on the presence or absence of a potential drug Mm -hmm. uh, or a, yeah. a, a compound. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think the other thing too, in the way that this is teed up is that they're trying to look for mechanisms um, that could potentially lead to this. And I mean, it's, it's no, um, you know, you're not going to win a Nobel prize for saying that increases in dopamine activity are related to uh, addictive chemicals, addictive behavior. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that this it may, it's a good first place to look if they included the behavior then they could say something about psychological addiction but this is more like physiological dependence and of course you know um the 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 chemicals that are the most of most consequence to those who are dependent on them do cause this physiological um changes to where like you know, um, going through opiate withdrawal, people not only are psychologically dealing with the fact that they're in high anxiety states, but they're also, you know, twitching and there's uncontrolled motor movements because there was a physiological dependence there. So mm -hmm. it's just certainly a strong underpinning, especially of drugs, um, you know, like central nervous system depressants, like narcotics or the benzos or alcohol to where the physiological dependence can get so bad that, um, you know, immediately stopping it can cause serious um, potential medical issues. 
Um, so, yeah. you know, they're, they're poking around in the right spot. And that's why I think broader in the broader context, I think that this lays a good foundation for a project that is looking at additional endpoints over a certain amount of time. You know, and the other thing too, is I guess I didn't really make note of, do you know how many rats this included? I didn't see that anywhere. I assume several <laughs> because, yeah. you know, they had to have ones that got the vehicle that got this much my tragedy and that got this much. Yeah, it's interesting so, they don't include that sample size in there. Um, so yeah. for the statisticians in the audience, that would be, you know, because if it's five <laughs> in each group, that's not necessarily. Um, I guess that why I bring it up too is because if there were five in the same, in, if there were five in, in the vehicle, the day one and the day four, if they're, if they are separate groups, it might just be the same rats all the way through. But like N of five, uh, is not a very statistically significant. It, so it would be preliminary, right? That's mm -hmm. that's what, maybe why it went in the letters. Now, if it was N of 50, um, that's different. And um, there was another one that um, I just had the abstract. I didn't have the full study, but it measured uh, alkaloids at serotonin receptors. This is another one. This is University of Florida. And because uh, you mentioned serotonin before, but it but it said uh, mm -hmm. painanthine and speciogenine exhibited high affinity for two serotonin receptors, unlike uh, mitragynine. So I thought that was pretty interesting, and it was an, it was another rat rat study. So maybe maybe for next time that'll I'll have the full thing available. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean the catecholamines, um, especially at a like electrochemical sensor level are um, almost impossible to distinguish. I mean, I think they, I think they did their, their due, due, due diligence here and they show us their correlation and, and their dose response, like with the increase in dopamine, there's an increase in the current measured. Um, but there's no way I, I have never heard of uh, discussed or like being available for purchase, like an electrochemical sensor that would be able to distinguish between changes in the current based on dopamine versus serotonin. You know, that would, that's a much different methodological question and hurdle that I, I don't even think, frankly, that we have the technology to do at this point. <laughs> it was a cool one though. It was a yeah. cool, quick one. You know, yeah. of course I always am a big fan of, uh, including multiple methods at different levels of analysis, because that's really um, all too often you'll get the behavioral groups that are just doing behavior. And so anything that, that does the gamut from like behavior to protein expression, to DNA expression, to MRNA expression, to physiological responses, you know, that's, that's really what modern neuroscience is all characterized by is, is traversing those levels of analysis um, as much as you possibly can in the same uh, study designs. And so, you know, for that, this paper is, is a great sort of shining example of how you can use genetic with, a, with the physiological, with the um, immunolinked uh, assays as well. Um, so, yeah, you know, I would assume more to come um, on, this, on this type of thing. Thank you, Dr. John Cachet. Follow him on social media at jcachet. So far, we don't do advertising and we don't ask for monetary contributions for this podcast, but we would like to ask you for your support. If you would like, rate, and review this podcast on whatever platform you're listening to, we would be grateful. This will help us move up in the rankings and help us spread the word about Kratom and Kratom Science. Journal Club is moving to once a month from twice a month. Dr. John took on a new project. The music is Captain Big Wheel. The song is Moon Runner. Kratom Science Journal Club is produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. Take care.